I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of Meat Beat Manifesto, featuring my guest today on the program, Jack Dangers. Let me tell you a little bit about Jack Dangers and Meat Beat Manifesto. Now, our story begins in San Francisco, California in 1989 with me. That's right. I thought I'd start my podcast about Meat Beat Manifesto by telling a story about myself because I may or may not be a narcissist. We'll We'll deal with that on another podcast. For now, let's just go with this intro, okay? San Francisco, 1989, I was obsessed with XTC's album, Oranges and Lemons. When I say obsessed, I mean obsessed. Like, I listened to it nonstop. I mean, someone should have intervened. I was listening to it so much, but they didn't, so I persisted, and that was that. Then a friend of mine gave me an album. The album was by Meat Beat Manifesto, and it was called Storm the Studio. Now, Storm the Studio was like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was a strange and furious mix of electronic, industrial, hip-hop, dub, noise rock, and breakbeats. I liked the album a lot, but it had nothing to do with the pop confections of XTC. Well, at least that's what I thought at the time. I later found out that it had pretty much everything to do with XTC. And when I say later, I mean like 30 years later. Specifically, I mean 30 years later during the course of this interview. More on that in a minute. But let's back up for a second. Meat Beat Manifesto got going in 1987 after the breakup of the pop band Perennial Divide. A feral blend of industrial, electronic, and trip-hop, MBM's inventive sound was complemented by their equally inventive live shows. A comprehensive audio-visual experience, Meat Beat Manifesto Live was like an art installation. With rabies. It was super cool. Augmented by dancers, costumes, choreography, video clips, live DJing, and sequenced instruments, the experience was nothing short of immersive. Over the course of their singular career, of which Dangers has remained the steady and sole brain trust, Meat Beat Manifesto have put out 12 albums, including classics like Satyricon and Armed Audio Warfare. They've toured with Nine Inch Nails, 
influenced everyone from the Prodigy to the Chemical Brothers, contributed music to the Matrix soundtrack, as well as the AIDS benefit album Offbeat, a Red Hot sound trip, and Dangerous Production Skills have found him remixing, producing, or sound designing tracks for everyone from Public Enemy to David Bowie to Depeche Mode. Oh, and let's not forget, he got nominated for a Grammy for remixing a Tower of Power track called What Is Hip? Meet Beat Manifesto's new album, Opaque Couché, is arguably their best yet. A brilliant synthesis of all they do best plus more, it's a wicked batch of industrial soul, heavily dosed with electronic flourishes, fevered loops, and big nasty beats. So, how does all that get us to XTC? Well... I'll let you find out with me. In fact, let's just do it together. Enjoy my chat with the very charming and very cool Jack Dangers, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. the new one it's sort of uh i've gone sort of pre it's like the prequel i've sort of gone back to uh I, it sounds corny but I've, I've sort of gone back to my roots with uh with this one um with the sort of drone based jungle aspect and uh say a track like critical soul vibrations i think that sort, sort of sounds like classic old uh storm studio era stuff so um so it's always sort of changed through the years what was it like to sort of reincorporate that into the sound um it I, it was more more or less the way i used to do music in the 90s and sort of got pushed away from uh, certain bits of equipment because of you're stuck in the computer with the the uh, sequencer software you're using and sort of drifted away from my old ways of doing things sort of in uh sort of 2008 uh up until a couple of years ago i sort of uh went back and sort of started doing music the old way i used to do it so uh i've always said you know technology dictates what uh what music's going to sound like and i'm sort of a bit of a luddite on this one i'm sort of going back and using my old my old process and my old ways of uh, of doing things. How how does that inform the creative process? Going back to that, it, do you find that it's like an old muscle? Yeah, it was, uh, it was sort of like riding a bike. Yeah, you, know, it, you, you don't forget it. You don't. You might not do it for a while, and then everything comes back. And um, you know, I sort of liked I like doing the sort of uh, uh, dubstep. Thing, you know, on a couple of albums, just because I've always had dub in my music right from the very start. So when that sort of uh, came along, I, I dabbled with that, and that sort of stuff you do solely in a uh, in the computer more or less, because you're using a lot of um, modern software rather than old synthesizers for that sort of stuff. Although you can, you know, use the old keyboards and Korg stuff for doing some good sort of uh, dubstep based sounds um primarily is uh is software based so um on uh autoimmune and answer answers come in dreams 
That was uh, probably my most laptop computer-based music I've ever done. So uh, I was happy to sort of jump back into, you know, the, the old way of doing things. When you were young and you connected with the music you talked about, when you, you know, was it, whether it's Throbbing Gristle or it was Kraftwerk or, or what have you, what was it that was kind of ringing your bell? I mean, what was it that, that excited you about that music originally? Um, sort of um, not understanding how it was done. Um, hearing things I never heard before. I was always interested as a kid, not so much with the music, but with sound effects and stuff. Like, you know, uh, first band I probably really liked and got into was the Beatles, mainly through listening to them on the radio. Cause I never had a record player at that point. But when I did get a cassette player, I would record, you know, um, go around my friend's house because he had all the all the Beatles records and uh, record them onto a cassette, bring them home. And I would sort of, I just remember breaking down like tracks like Strawberry Fields Forever and just being, um, you know, just trying to work out what what's what and how they did that. And, um, and you know, to this day, there's still certain things which, which they did, which still stand, stand out. Um, like Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, how that, <laughs> that track was just sitting there on uh, Revolver for a bunch of years before anyone really sort of, oh, hold on a minute, this one, this track is like really ahead of its time. Right. So, you know, there's not very many bands who can do that. So you've got to always give, give them that credit. And the same thing for Kraftwerk, you know, they were influenced by them, uh, but they went and did their own thing. So, um, so a track like Numbers, I remember first hearing that, I'm just thinking, wow, did they do that? Um, you know, my favorite sort of piece of the music are things where I still don't know how they did that. <laughs> right. So, you know, so that's what, you know, that's the sort of things I listen out for in, in, uh, in music that immediately grabs my attention. It's sort of the same thing for hip hop. Like when I first heard um, Rebel Without a Pause, I didn't know what that loop was going, the high-pitched thing going on in the background, which turned out to be a sample from JB's. It's like an overblown um, saxophone or trumpet. I think it's a trumpet, I'm not sure. Um, sounds like a tea kettle, you know, with a steamer on. When you leave a kettle on too long, it starts making a high-pitched sound. That's how we used to brew tea, where I grew up anyway, in uh, in England. And uh, so, yeah, things like that. And uh, like like hearing loops and, and uh, drum breaks in hip-hop and then like actually finding and stumbling across them, you know, on the records where they came from. I always, uh, always got something out of that. So, uh, yeah, that's the sort of things I, I like. Unexpected Right, so in uh, familiar places. If you if you heard something like Duran Duran on the radio, it wasn't that you hated them; it was that it was too easy to figure out. Um, partly, also the fact that I hated them as well. Though, <laughs> but, uh, that's besides the point. Yeah, you know, if, if it was just pop music for pop music's sake, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I I grew up in Swindon, where uh, XTC come from, so I was. Uh, a big XTC fan, and uh, they, did, uh, they dabbled with electronic music in the, in the uh, early days. 
and that sort of piqued my interest that someone local would even be trying to attempt to do something like that. Plus, Andy went on to produce uh, Thomas Dolby and um, actually produced the Perennial Divide 12-inch, which we did together. Um, so, yeah, I learned a lot from them. Um, you know, well, pop music's good when it's when it's done well and when it's clever, and they were definitely one of the bands who did that. So Duran Duran versus XTC, you know, it's not no... <laughs> You know, it's no contest. Is no. It? <laughs> Did you know the guys in XTC at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um, first met them in uh, 81 um, when I was 16. Managed to get a job in the uni studio there. And they would rehearse there. So I saw them actually rehearsing for uh, a tour they never really did, which was for English Settlement. I was like, the only one in the room sitting on their flight cases pretending to read the newspaper. Well, actually, like, in awe of how tight and <laughs> how good their songs were. You know, that was huge inspiration for me. That was me. That was like someone telling me, you know, if they can do it, you can do it. Colin Molden and Andy Partridge come from the same uh, council estate where I'm from, called Penn Hill in Swindon. So uh, if they could pull themselves out of that, so can I. And um, thankfully, I did. Otherwise, I'd still be uh, still be there doing uh, the horrible jobs I started off doing when I left school at 16. You know, I never went to uh, college or university. I was because uh, of that experience. That was it. You know, I was like, well, I'm doing something in music, and uh, I'd be the one doing. I'd be the one in the frogging gristle lightning strike T-shirt, uh, being the uh, tape op in the studio. And um, I remember asking Andy once, what do you think of Robin Gristle? He was going, I don't like the music, but I appreciate what they're doing. And I was actually, I completely agreed with him. Like, I didn't like everything they did. <laughs> right. Some of it, I don't think you, you were supposed to like. Um, I was always more of a Cabra Voltaire head because they had more, they, you know, they had more of a beat, more of a rhythm going, you know, so... They influenced me more than Robin Gristle, but I respected everything Robin Gristle did because uh, they were the first to do it. Could you could you hear the sound of Swindon in XTC's music? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Not really. There isn't really a sound of Swindon except for them, I suppose. It didn't reflect on Swindon. That was, that's, that was what was unusual about them. You know, the... Um, they worked with really fast tempos and uh, did dubby bass lines. And, you know, the two together just with us. Uh, there's a bit right at the end of Living for Another Cuba when there's a distorted drum machine going like 200 BPM. And that was in the 79, way before yeah. <laughs> hardcore or anything was happening. You know, and it's just a little bit they tagged on at the end and, <clears throat> you know, I suppose that that is the sound of Swindon. Dubby bass lines, you know, I've, I've always done that. Um, but, you know, that's through growing up in the 70s in uh, in Britain, where there was a lot of reggae and dub stuff, which actually, you know, got in the charts, got to number one, you know. It was, it was always a big type of music there. So that just sort of rubbed off of me. People like Adrian Sherwood in the 80s, what he did was, you know, for producing. 
he was a very important inspiration to me. I've had Colin on the program, and he told me that you know McCartney was his guy in terms of the bass and talking to you and you know you were really interested in the Beatles as well. It's funny how how the Beatles just informed so many different people who went on to make so much different music. I know. I, mean, I know. It's, it's, it's always this battle, you know, between them and the Stones. Like, who do you prefer, the Beatles or the Stones? And to me, it was always the Beatles. Because not just how they started off, which was, you know, good pop music, but then where they went in the mid-60s and then where they went after that. Such a short period of time. It's just uh, mind-blowing. I'm curious, were, were, your, were your parents supportive of you going this, this artistic direction? No, no, not at all. They didn't care what I did, but at the same time, they didn't. Um, <clears throat> we're from a very working class family, so there was no sort of uh, help in any way, monetary wise. You know, I got a base on HP, higher purchase, which, which you know, uh, which you'd pay off every month, which took years to pay off because the interest would <laughs> keep getting higher and higher. But uh, yeah, they no, they wouldn't have. They were. I, they had me when it, when they were in their forties, so um, you know they were in the mid to late fifties when I was <laughs> listening to stuff like this and wanting to do it as a career. Not that we ever sat down and said that. You know, I just went from one menial laboring job to the next one through those years, just to you know pay off equipment and stuff like that. Was the was it very hard to play the early records live, or or was it tricky? Did you did you make it difficult for yourself to recreate that on stage, or you you were able to do it? Um, the first uh, Meat Beat shows, it was pretty easy to do because we um, we weren't using sequence. This is like an '87. We didn't have like a bunch of sequences on stage running the tracks until a couple of years later. So to begin with, it was more of a visual. Thing. Um, you know, some of the shows do only last 20 minutes because we'd kick all the monitors off and throw <laughs> the mics into the audience. And it was all just the complete shambolic um, punk rock esque thing we were doing on stage. We had um, at one point, we had like 15 dancers all doing different things, and the show would only last like 10 minutes. So it was like a concentrated puree of stuff and then when it came you know to talk you can do that because it was all local um london's only an hour away from swindon so um you know all those shows were in london and all the other people sort of lived in london so uh that was easy to do it was it wasn't until uh, we had a bunch of shows lined up and you, you know did after go on tour became a little bit more complicated so we had to cut the dancers down to just three and then we were running um the music via sequences but that had that had its own problems as well one show we were doing the uh jupiter eight decided to fall off backwards <laughs> off the stand and took all the uh midi cables out the mpc 60 we were using to run everything and so everything stopped all of a sudden but at least uh, we were all in time we all stopped <laughs> at the same time <laughs> but i mean what an innovative way to present that music whereas now it's almost embarrassingly easy to do it right in terms of presentation yeah 
Ableton Live. We we use that live. You know, everyone uses that live. It's pretty solid. Nothing's really going to go wrong. Um, but you know, the thing we add to the live show is that we do a lot of uh, improvised on the spot video sample sampling. So uh, we're still heavy on on that front. There's still a big visual component. A lot of the uh, audio snippets through the years, that spoken word stuff, a lot of that came from films. Like, um, let's say, uh, for example, House Scouter has got like this scream in the middle of, well, when the uh, repeating, if, I suppose you call it a chorus, but it's not really a chorus. When that comes around, um, there's this scream, and you wouldn't necessarily know what it was. It's a scene from Clockwork Orange where Malcolm McDowell's being visually tortured with his eye, eyeballs being forced open. Right. So uh, when we play live, you know, you see the visual as, at the same time as the uh, the audio. Which so you know, that, that's sort of like when I got a kick out of uh, finding hip hop samples, like playing a record. And when um, uh, Midnight Marauders came out. By uh, Tribe Called Quest, yeah, and uh, I was flicking through uh, some jazz records, and there was all this <laughs> bunch of their their music sort of coming to life, and uh, I, I like that. So it's sort of like a Andy Warhol pop art aspect to to it, like found sound, changing it collage style, changing it you know to to something else, turning it into your own artwork and your own art. When I really got into you guys, it was around eighty nine, ninety, and I was at the time I was also really listening a lot to the Stone Roses and um, Ride and, and the Charlatans. I was really into that stuff, <laughs> and so when I got the Meat Beat records, because I was a, a DJ in college, um, they'd come straight yeah. from the record companies, which would have been would have been Wax Tracks, I think, at the time. Yeah, it would have been over here. Right, and I and I didn't know what to make of what you were doing. I just knew I loved it. I didn't. I didn't really fully understand. It just seemed like it came from this like uh, planet that I had never thought of before. And I loved the architecture of the sound, and I loved what it was doing. And it took me a while to really go, "Oh yeah, this is really there's some texture and layers here." And you know, because I was such yeah. a I was such a lyrics, a pop verse, chorus, you know, ver- sure. uh, right. Yeah. So, and then I finally just got so obsessed with with your records. Were you? Were you concerned with when you were presenting this? Were you wondering like people aren't going to know what to make of this? Or was that ever a concern? Or no? No, no, not at all. No, no. If they don't know what to make of it now, you know, maybe, maybe later on they will. It's sort of like uh, if, you know, if you don't understand something, maybe you weren't ever supposed to understand it. Right. But uh, I, I've been like that with certain things myself. So. Um, but yeah, it's funny that you you said the charlatans and the stone roses. Um, they were influenced by uh, the Dukes of Stratosphere. Ah. Were you did you were you ever into them? I love that. Like yeah, I loved that uh, that side project of of XTC. Yeah, like they went, they did their first album in uh, twenty five o'clock. They did that in uh, eighty five. Yeah, with John Le- John Lecky, and um, the uh, album they did after that. They did in uh, a studio in Cornwall with John Leckie again. And um, then John Leckie kept getting phone calls from uh, the Stone Roses, you know, their first album. They wanted him to produce it and they wanted to 
record it at the same studio where the, the Dukes were, had recorded it. And then the Charlatans did the same thing. And then Oasis did the same thing. And uh, they never really got that credit, you know, because um, it was a sort of uh, the retro thing in 85 to go back to the 60s. It was just too early to do that. The, the only other thing which had done that in, would have been the Ruttles. In the 70s, right. you know, and that was just a, a spoof, just a lampoon. Um, so, 80, you know, even 87, it was a bit early. But by the time, I think it was 89, wasn't it, when uh, Stone Roses' first album came out? Yeah. That was when, you know, when you had Creation Records and House of Love and all these people doing... Uh, and uh, uh, God... Uh, I can't remember all the bands, but uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, you know, they were another one doing this retro 60s thing. And then all of a sudden it was uh, popular and trendy again. But they were definitely the first to do that. And Deep Freeze Mice, can you remember them? They no, were them, them who, I don't know. Yeah, very early. They more sort of like psychedelic. Um, I don't know how to describe them. They were pretty unique. But uh, same sort of period. Mid eight is way too early to be doing the sixties thing, but uh, obviously influential for other bands to come, you know, later on. I never made that connection with Lecky, and I, mean, I remember like Vanishing Girl. I remember that, that's such great pop stuff on that Duke's record, and I never really made that connection. But now that I think about that Roses song, "Don't Stop," you can really hear the connection between the Dukes and and the oh, Roses yeah. on that one. And I uh, I sampled. Uh, God, I can't remember what track it was on the Stone Roses album, but I did sample a, a little loop on there, sort of like a drum break um, played with brushes. And, that, and I used that on a track called Still Falling. Oh. At the same time when um, uh, Pixies brought out um, Doolittle yeah. and Monkey's Gone to Heaven, there was a track on there. I sampled the drum break on that for... Uh, Dogstar Man. So uh, I was listening to all that that stuff. The same stuff you were listening to, but yeah. doing you know something completely different. I do like pop music when it's done well, you know. And obviously, <laughs> not going to get better than the Beatles. So everything's <laughs> just sort of downhill from there. <laughs> Did when you look at Meat Beat Manifesto now, when you think of the band as this kind of organism which has survived um, all these years. Do you regard it in the same way that you regarded it before, or how is your how is your concept of the band different now than it was maybe thirty years ago? Um, not that much different. Probably, um, uh, uh, not no. I don't think it's that much different at all. It's always uh, I always wrote everything. It's been a couple of people I've worked with through the years, mainly vocalists, actually just vocalists who uh, might get a writing credit. Um, but uh, no, it's just, I feel the same about it now as I did back then. It was just uh, my, this is my art. This is right. what I do. And, you know, and this is it. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. So, you know, going back to the Beatles again, uh, the whole thing about a peak couche being, you know, the one color. That's obviously a, uh, Another Beatles reference right there, yeah. <laughs> you know, from the White Album. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I hold the, I wear my influences on my sleeve now. It's, no, it's just not worth, you know, you got to tell the, tell the truth. And 
I don't know, some people were wincing when I would mention the Beatles, which just makes me scratch my head. I don't know why, but if they were a big influence to you, you know, they always will be. Yeah, I think people people would have thought that you would have said, oh, I'm more interested in, I was influenced by, you know, a jackhammer and, you know, some kind of abstraction <laughs> of sound. Uh, the Beatles might Yeah, seem, no, I would have. Right? I, I would have as well, because I, I used to work in heavy industry. You know, I'd, I'd go up uh, on the train to London, go and see uh, Einstein and Neubarten and Test Department uh, on stage, you know, doing this arty um, thing with uh, metal grinders and uh, visuals and um, spoken word poets, but all using, you know, the image of heavy industry. And, uh, yeah, they were all art students. You know, they've never, <laughs> they've never worked in a place like that in their life. Same as uh, uh, from Gristle as well. We're all art students. We're all sort of, you know, some middle class, wealthy families. You know, I'm completely the same as uh, uh, Andy Partridge, as far as that goes, and Colin Moulton. Not the same. Very working class. No prospects. So it's like a John Lydon level, you know. I saw a program about him on YouTube where he went back to his old house and it was, you know, it was the same, same sort of thing. Very working class. Um, although he, they did have a budgery guard and a hamster and, uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that. Actually, I did have a hamster until he escaped from the cage. But, um, yeah. So John Lydon's hamster was actually called Sid Vicious. So that's where they got Sid Vicious's <laughs> name from. Which is the best, best pseudonym in, in the, in rock and music industry ever. You could like, you know, think of all of them through the years, Elvis Presley onwards and before that. And the best all time name is Sid Vicious, hands down. Yeah. Can get a bit silly name than that. I tried, but uh, can't beat uh, Sid Vicious. (laughs) The problem is when your name is Sid Vicious, you you better be tough. You better back it up. Yeah. I know. I just think what the hamster must have been like, you know. (laughs) Very very violent little mammal. Yeah. Little rodent. <laughs> he probably, he probably, he probably just threw the cage across the room. Yeah. Yeah. He probably had a safety pin in his ear as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've, I think I've finally understood now after all these years, how to describe your band. I would say they're like the Beatles interpreted through a jackhammer. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, yeah, like I was saying, I've watched these bands get back on the last train home and then get up for work the next morning. And um, uh, I used to work at this place called British Rail where they made um, locomotives and rolling stock. And the wheels would be on this turning machine, which would make this incredible sound, which I remember recording a couple of times. I'd go around, I'd walk around. It used to be the biggest enclosed factory in Europe, 46,000 people. And then... Um, when I was working it, they were sort of running the whole, Thatcher was running the whole industry into the ground so she could privatize everything. So, um, you know, so we'd be going on strikes and going on marches and I was in the union and everything. I was a real socialist. Uh, so I'd go up to London, watch all these art students doing their arty farty stuff and then uh, go back to work the next day. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from that... Uh, I'm, I'm from that cut. I think I now understand why Andy Partridge collects trains. Yes. Oh, yes. Swindon, huge, uh, very famous 
for um, its uh, locomotive engineering works, which they finally closed in '86. I was there when they closed the the gates, and uh, that's basically what the first perennial divide down was all about. Was how um, industry was being privatised in Britain, and uh, so I think that was one reason. Because I, I went round his house and knocked on his door with this with this album, and he answers the door, and uh, you know went in and started talking about you know working on a 12 inch and he was up for it straight away spent a whole week doing this 12 inch he did it all for nothing he said uh, just buy me a crate of beer <laughs> which we never even like got around to doing um so yeah it was i think that sort of uh and the fact that i was in pin hill sort of uh went into uh him you know giving up a, a valuable week of andy partridge where he could have been creating <laughs> music he was uh, working with us stayed in touch with Andy Partridge? I, I, last time I saw him uh, was in 2007. I always used to bump into him. I went in Swindon. I'd bump into him going into youth agents, lived in the same area uh, in Old Town. And um, so I moved over here in 93 uh, and sort of found out of touch. 
the last time I saw him was in 2007. Um, and uh, I've got to send him an email. He gave me his email address and I lost it. But he's oh. on Twitter all the time. He's on Twitter all the time and, I, and I'm not. So uh, I should probably uh, communicate via Twitter. But I'd hate to do that because I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I don't want, I don't good, want to start. Maybe a good reason to start. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of times when I, when I interview bands, that they'll always tell me like, "Oh, part of the reason why we got into this was to meet girls." And I, I wonder, like, <laughs> if with with Meet Beat, I mean, like, I just wonder if that was that doesn't sound like it was ever really a motivation, um, or no, was it? No, it wasn't the motivation. <laughs> no, certainly not the motivation, but uh, a nice byproduct. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, you know, I wouldn't turn down. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of worked you know i, I met my wife uh you know through um what was i actually touring when it was when i was doing uh working with consolidated and um i was over here doing um i think it was play more music yeah play more music and uh, that's how i got into animal rights was because uh, working with them I've been a vegetarian ever since. I was a vegan for a while, but I'm not sure. I'm a vegan now, but I don't know if you can say you're a vegan without. There's so many. It, there's so many products which use um, animal byproducts. Right. I'm, I'm not sure how anyone can really say they're a vegan these days. Just, there'd be something they they wouldn't know about somewhere in their house. Um, so I've always said, you know, I'm a vegetarian and that was through working with them. And, uh, at the same time when I was in the studio with them, there was a, um, animal rights group in the Bay area called in defense of animals. And they, um, put on this big, uh, show. There's like 15,000 people at city hall. And I uh, did a couple of tracks with consolidated and, um, that's where I, Met my wife there because she organized it. And we're still together all these years. She still puts up with me. Can you believe <laughs> that? Uh, otherwise, I'd be back in Swindon. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, th- this is uh, our very San Francisco conversation. I- I'm a vegan as well. Um, ah, okay. You haven't killed any, any bacteria today, have you? No, I don't or... think so. God, I hope not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but I am. And I, and I, I originally went vegan uh, because I met a girl and at the yeah. time i, I was i was a, a big meat eating tennis player in college and i met a girl who was really pretty and she said to me i'm a vegan and i said me too <laughs> that was it <laughs> but i wasn't <laughs> i lied so you, uh, you 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 would have been uh, you would have been one of those people if you were in a band you would have been uh, one of those bands who would have said we got into doing music so we can meet girls. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that would have been me. And I and I, I lied. And uh, and then we ended up breaking up for a, you know after a few years. But I I went on with it and I stayed and found uh, that life was better and I felt better and I and I felt better about the world and not you know killing anybody. Yeah. What about oh, yeah. for you? What was it for you that really resonated in terms of that dietary choice? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's all to do with how animals are treated. I didn't want anything to do with it. Simple as that. Yeah. I have no, nothing to do with that industry. And uh, I can't even watch anything about it. I, you know, like, 
consolidated would show videos live, you know, of um, animal abuse at slaughterhouses and stuff like that. And I could never watch it. I can't to this day. I know it happens. I can't do anything about it. Uh, my brother used to work in the dairy industry in um, New Zealand. And, it, you know, he'd tell me about, he used to run the casein department, which was a byproduct of milk. And they would use that in uh, the gloss of photographs. They would use it in to separate pixels in a screen. And, uh, so all those things are still used. And uh, I, just, I can't see how, you know, you can get away from that if you don't even know that, that those products are being used in everyday items. I'm sure there's something in the, the iPhone I'm using right now somewhere in there which has some type of animal product. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I know it's it's hard to it's hard to really make you know be very clear about what is and what isn't. But in terms of just general yeah. food consumption, it's much easier to police that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Sure. And there's so many, so many, um, you know, types of uh, fake meats you can get, and this whole impossible burger thing is taken off big time, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. I like I like so the that you're. You, you're such a charming guy. You charmed, you charmed the person who put on the, the animal rights. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. Top of the morning to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of in terms of the um, the efficiency now of creating and being an artist, do you feel that you are? that there's more of an efficacy to what you do where that might've taken you longer in the old days, or do you feel that you've always been a very, a very precise, efficient artist? Uh, yeah, pretty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty OCD. So, um, no waste. Everything is used. Everything is recycled. Even what, you know, some of my music where I'm sampling things. That's why we used to use the recycle logo a lot mm. on um you know we had on t-shirts and artwork and stuff and it was all you know as a you know just to say that we're recycling audio whether it's a you know drum break or whatever i've seen i'm still doing that now on the, the new album um pin drop you know i'm using famous uh drum breaks mainly uh james brown but the uh, amen break as well they're all on there and i'm just sort of using them in a in a not so familiar way to make it sound different but you, you know the classic breaks are classic breaks for a reason and um uh, you know i spent years scouring record shops uh, for that reason to find found sound but at the same time you know i make up stuff as well use you know from scratch it's not just about sampling um, so, uh, no, I think I'm pretty, uh, pretty efficient and precise as, as far as that goes with, so, uh, this is what I'm doing for the, for the meat beat, uh, box set. There's no extra tracks that people haven't heard. Is that, is that what, um, no, no, there's definitely, uh, tracks people haven't heard. Yeah. We should do a, should do a, uh, rarities box set of, yeah. uh, greatest, greatest beat, greatest bits. Yeah, greatest, great, greatest <laughs> bits, and um, you know, put things on there which people haven't heard before, or versions of, of things which you haven't heard. Like, there's a couple of versions of Radio Babylon, 
I did at the time. People were only uh, used to the one which came out. Um, so yeah, you, yeah, you could do that. More recycling. More recycling. What What is your vision of the band uh, for the future, or do you even think about stuff like that? No, not no, not not the future at this point. No, I'm 54, and um, working on the next album. So uh, if that's looking into the future, um, you're not going to get rid of me that easily. I'm actually uh, more inspired at the moment than I was uh, 10 years ago. So I'm sort of chopping them out at the moment and sort of tipping everything upside down as well in the studio rather than working in a sequencer-based way, you know, with software like Logic audio or um pro tools or something like that I'm sort of coming out of the out of the box and using external sequencing things there's a whole new bunch of equipment out there sort of like modular modules made for like euro racks and stuff like that and you can use the sequencers from that to control stuff rather than just be trapped in the box and so we're getting fed up with just looking at a computer screen all the time. It was great to begin with, made things easier, you know, from, uh, it was very hard to sync stuff up in, in the eighties and it got easier, you know, and in the nineties with software and stuff, but you just sort of get trapped in that rigmarole of, uh, of just using stuff in, in the, in the box and not outside. So, um, definitely got more into that. And uh, that's what I'm doing at the moment. I love hearing that you feel more creatively alive uh, than ever. What do you think that is due to? Um, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. I just sort of, uh, I just stumbled across some new ways of doing things in the last year. And it's just sort of uh, souped everything up. Now I'm in um, cruise control. And... Uh, I suppose you just have to wait and see what the next one sounds like to see if <laughs> what I'm talking about makes any sense. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad to be out of the computer. I'm still using it to record stuff as a multi-track. Um, but at the same time, I could also be doing it on tape. So at this point, the computer is sort of uh, as a laptop thing, you know, as a piece of equipment which you're sequencing everything from is sort of not what I'm doing at the moment. And it's creating more interesting things, things I haven't sort of been doing for uh, almost 30 years. So, uh, Do you find that you're able to compartmentalize the, you know, the artistic side with the practical daily quotidian, you know, getting through the day part of life? Um, or do you find that the two... No, no, I'm not very good at that. I'm not good at routine. So uh, I probably, you know, sometimes I start at 10 o'clock and end at six in the morning. I then get woken up two hours later by some construction outside or dog barking. Um, so, yeah, I'm not good at following a routine. But when something's sort of clicking, I tend to over, like spend uh, over too much time just to get it done. And like I'm, you know, I'm looking out the window. Oh, the sun's coming up. I better go to, to bed. I, I, I get completely 
enveloped in what I'm doing. One of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, everyone who I've talked to who used to live in San Francisco, who was an artist, doesn't live there anymore. Um, how has the city changed around you and how have you adapted um, to what's happened? Well, I uh, live just outside um, in Mill Valley, oh, in Marin, yeah. you know, if, you, uh, if you've been, you know, where Mount Tamil Pius is. So, uh, yeah, I moved there in 93. So uh, I used to record in uh, in a studio in, in the city. That was a while ago, though. Everything's sort of more, I just do everything up here now. Um, but, yeah, a lot of my friends have had to move out over to the East Bay, El Cerrito and El Cerrito and um, <laughs> Oakland and uh, places like that just because the rent's cheaper. But um, my main partner, Ben Stokes, who, I've, you know, he was in Beat Beat when we play live. Yeah. He's still there. He's still in the city and he's got a space still. So not all the artists have been strangled yet and um, chucked out. But yeah, it's definitely getting harder and harder. And the rent is astronomical at this time in the, in the city. It's the most expensive place in the bloody world to live at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think crazy. it's topped, uh, topped London and New York. Yeah, that is crazy. And, it, you know, it's because of, it's a tech hub. And now all these, you know, like Uber and Lyft going, uh, having their IPOs, that's obviously going to, uh, increase increase the rent in San Francisco, I suppose. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it seems even though it's so close, ten minutes away, it seems to be getting further and further away in terms of going there. You can't bloody park anywhere. Right. It's um, yeah, I rarely sort of go there that much, uh, to be honest with you, and you know. So I'm 54 now, so I'm not going to go out and hang out in clubs and right. <laughs> stuff like that. I'd rather, I'm a studio wart, so I'm, I'm always in the studio doing doing what I do. So uh, it's nice living in this area, close to all of that. But artistically, it's not going to help anyone, is it? All this tech stuff. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just making you know people in that industry richer and and a solid job, which is great. Um, yeah, I do another project called the JDs. Me and uh, a guy called John Druckmann, who's in Bass Kittens. And uh, he works at Beats. And so uh, I was here about, you know, that side of the tech industry and Apple. And, you know, he works in the big Apple ring, whatever it's called. Um, so yeah, he's always filling me in what's going on there, but, uh, about, you know, that's about as artistic as it gets, isn't it? Like, you know, Apple bringing out, uh, computers, which you can use to make music and software. Um, that's about as artistic as it gets these days. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a much different place than when you, when you came out here in 93. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, completely. You know, like it's, I said, it seems to be moving further and further away, even though it it's still there. Right. Like it's drifting, <laughs> drifting towards L.A. I don't know. I'm actually from where you live. I, I was born in Marin, and 
Um, oh, okay. you know, Marin looks the same to me. Um, you know, in terms of its, its identity, its feel, um, Mill Valley, the same. Uh, although I know, I know that it's so ridiculously expensive now. Um, yeah, it's expensive and. Uh, it's, it's expensive to go to a restaurant. Right. It's going to be eighty to ninety dollars, no matter what it is. Uh, so we uh, we don't really have much to do with Mill Valley. We always end up in uh, San Rafael doing stuff. But you know, we bought the place in '93. <laughs> Smart. We could have, you know, when when you could afford to buy a house. So we were just lucky that we did that then, and you know, we're still here. Um, for how much longer though? I don't know, but um, it's all good at the moment, though. Yeah, yeah, and it, and I'm sure it it feels like home. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I don't know if anywhere really felt like home to me. Though I've always felt like that all my life. But I didn't really have a home. <laughs> I don't know why. Is that right? You, you never Maybe really felt because I didn't have a home. <laughs> yeah, when I was living in Swindon, I was always trying to get out of the place. Nothing ever happened there. Um, so, you know, I finally did get out of the place and ended up somewhere else where nothing ever happened. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, you know, but because it was so close to San Francisco where stuff was happening, it was great for a number of years. But now I don't got that. I don't see it like that anymore. You know, you get the odd bank, obviously, coming through. Orbital, a couple of months ago when they came through. Yeah. So you get, you know, and they only played in New York here in LA so you know it's a big famous city where you're going to get things like that you're going to get craft work coming in and it's great for things like that but if you're a new band geez I don't know uh well you, you know would you even be living here to begin with yeah probably not <laughs> it's got yeah you know it's, it's crazy I know you need a rehearsal space you know it's uh it's tough I don't know how you would do it um, well, I, I'm, I'm happy San Francisco is, or, you know, the Bay area is as close to a home as you've felt, uh, <laughs> that you've got. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I don't know. I'm weird like that. It's like, yeah, I wanted to get out of Swindon. I made it to London, which I absolutely hated. Then I made it over here. And then I'm thinking, did I feel better when I lived in Swindon? Because it's just a lot easier to live there, but that's probably changed as well in the last 25 years. But I know it wouldn't be as expensive to live there as it would be. Uh, God, if, if it's more expensive to live in San Francisco than London, that is, like, that's absolutely crazy. I know. Because no, London was always so expensive. It's just gotten insane. It, uh, it Actually, it's interesting how Partridge actually stayed in Swindon, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, he uh, got married, had a couple of kids, I think they separated and he ended up with uh, a new American wife who he met somewhere over here. And so she moved there, Innocence Abroad. She's uh, She's been living in Swindon, I think, for over 20 years now. Um, so there must be some, you know, good points to the place. <laughs> but I knew when, when, I, when I lived there, I was just like hell-bent on, on getting out of there. And uh, so, yeah, made it here. But if you, I don't know if I call it home. Yes, I suppose I do. But <laughs> I'm always looking. I'm always looking around the corner as far. Yeah. As my brother's 
emigrated to New Zealand in uh, 72. So um, it's always been on the cards. Like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if things get too bad here. Uh, I've got, I'm still a British citizen. I've got a British passport, I'm not an American citizen, so I could move to, you know, if uh, Trump decides to attack Iran for no real good reason, yeah. um, I can always, uh, you know, scoot on up to Canada or bugger off over down under or uh, some, something like that. Yeah, but, I, uh, I, I fear that could happen that too. Yeah, well, if it does, that's pretty pathetic. Like yeah. They didn't uh, learn anything the first time around. They got the same bloody people like Bolton doing the same shit he was 15 years ago. Right. They're crazy. They're crazy. Right-wingers are crazy. Like, yeah. I've, I've always grown up absolutely disliking right-wingers. You know, you just look at just look at them through history, who they were, who they are, and they're the biggest despots. And, um, you know, people vote for them because they are like them themselves. There are asshole, evil people out there who would, like, look at Trump and go, yeah, that's my man, because, right. you know, he's like, he's like me, so I'm going to vote for him. So they've always been there, they always will be. And um, But, you know, working with a foreign enemy... To, you know, to get to uh, to get political points is just uh, a new low as far as they, they as Republicans go. And then they'd look around and say, "What us? We didn't do anything. What us?" <laughs> you know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, Stupid. And, and Bolton. I mean, Bolton's been writing this sort of like war porn for the last ten years. He has these op-ed pieces about attacking Iran, and it's sort of like, well, where do you think he's going next? You know, he's, he's yeah, left a he, map. He wants a wargasm. That's what yeah. he wants. That's what he needs. That's yeah. the only way he can uh, achieve the climax is by having a, having a war. Yeah. A wargasm. It feels very fetishistic on, uh, on his part. I, well, it's very worrisome. I hope it doesn't happen. Um, and I hope uh, next time we talk, Trump's out of office. Oh, God. I'm counting the days. <laughs> but, you know... All they're going to do is turn turn around and work with the enemy again. You know, if it's not the Russians this time, it'd be uh, who knows North Koreans, right? Maybe uh, maybe secret um, Nazi UFO bases in uh, subterranean Atlantis somewhere. They work with you know they defrost the Nazis and work with them. Uh, who knows? I don't know where they're going to go with this. Plus yeah. the whole abortion thing. <laughs> like whatever, whatever. Jeez, you know. Yeah. You know, and the same thing's going on in Britain, the whole Brexit thing, just tearing the country in half. And it's the same right wing <clears throat> um, people, you know, they've just got a posher accent over there. Any difference? They're the same cut from the same piece of cloth. Yeah, it seems the, the, the evil plan has uh, is boundless. Yeah. Which, which is very going to take over the world. <laughs> but thank God for art. Jack, that's uh, that will save us. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> we, you know, we shall try. We'll be in the, uh, we'll be on the front line. We'll fight them on the beaches. We will be in the bunkers. <laughs> well, Jack, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat with me. Yeah, well, thanks for doing it. Of course, it's, um, I think we covered quite a lot there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, 
I love I love hearing you because I'm 48. We're you know we're very similar in age. I like hearing yeah. that you are because I'm a writer and I like hearing that you are creatively more alive than ever because I feel the same way. So that that makes me excited. Yeah, I'm a I'm a bit of a writer as well. I write a column for a magazine in uh, Britain called Electronic Sound. Oh. I do column every month where I pick a record out of my collection. I've got quite a vast collection of uh, electronic vinyl through the years, like classical music concrete onwards. And um, I pick a record and go on about it. Like the next column is, is going to be about laughing hands. If you've ever heard of them, no. the Australian experimental um, band from the early eighties did some really good stuff criminally unknown so um that's what i'm going to be writing in next month and the last month which i just got yesterday was about um andy partridge and wow. his electronic electronic excursions which he uh which he did through the years so so yeah so i do that every month been doing it since uh 2012 so uh yeah so i like to you know do that keeps it fresh yeah interesting it's not very cool you know doing music but writing about it too it's all good yeah i I didn't know that you were about your connection with with xtc i had no idea that that you had known those guys yeah yeah oh yeah yeah they were my drinking buddies and (laughs) going down the curry house I liked I liked Colin. Colin was a really a really sweet guy. Yeah, he's a bit of a country gentleman. Isn't yes. He? Yeah. Great bass player too. Oh my god. Great Give bass player. And he teamed up with the original guy who had played drums. I can't remember his name. Terry um, Chambers. Yes, and they did they did a little project together, and it, it was a just a quick EP called I think it was TCI or something like that. Um, yeah, it was um, it was called Scatter Me, wasn't it? The, the main song they did a yes. video for it. I actually really like that song. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> yeah, I liked it too. Um, and then he, there was talk about them doing some live stuff. Anyway, then I think they they called it a day. It was a short lived thing. Yeah, they they did four shows at the uh, art center in Swindon. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what happened, or you know, they just because they didn't play live for so long. It was like you know just didn't like it or whatever. But uh, yeah, Terry Chambers moved to Australia in 82 after they sort of stopped playing live and came back 35 years later, back to Swindon. So, you know, you never know. I've only been out uh, since 93, so you never know. I might end up back there. But I don't know why. I wouldn't be be playing with anyone there. (laughs) He had a reason reason to go back there. But uh... Well, I'm glad you haven't gone back to Swindon. I'm glad you're still here in the Bay Area, and I'm glad you're still making music, uh, because I love it. So so thank you again, man, for chatting. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Thanks for doing it. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. You got it, buddy. You know, at one point during that interview, I was worried I was going too heavy on the XTC. I kept stitching it through the conversation, but, you know, my mind was kind of blown. I didn't know there was such a uh, 
a close relationship between Meat Beat Manifesto and XTC? Who knew that? Uh, oh, anyway, now we all know. Now, if you want to know more about Meat Beat Manifesto, just go to meatbeatmanifesto.com. Tour dates, music, all that stuff is there. If you want to know information about me, alexgreenonline.com will do the trick. Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, but Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available anywhere that you get podcasts. Stitcher, Google Play, Last.fm, uh, Spotify, whatever's left of iTunes. I don't know how that's going to shake down. Do you? What's going to happen to iTunes? What happens to all your MP3s? Do those still work? Are they useless? Is it like having old keys? I have no idea. We're going to find out. Nothing worse than a drawer full of old keys that uh, don't turn locks anymore. They're for, uh, for ghost doors. I hope my MP3s – yeah, I still have them. I still have MP3s, rare stuff, live stuff, cool stuff. Is that just going to be useless stuff? Again, we'll find out. I'm a little worried. I'm a little bit worried, uh, but not that worried. Just worried-ish. Uh, now, if you want to know more about Stereo Embers, the podcast, I'll tell you all you need to know. Follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. Follow me on Instagram, Embers Podcast. Or if you're old-fashioned and you want to email me, please do so. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Nothing more quaint these days than receiving an email. It makes me feel like Mr. Darcy. Uh, now, if you want someone on the program, please let me know. If you uh, want me to bring somebody back, please let me know that as well. Just drop me a line and tell me what you want, and I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do for you. Okay? Let's close the show off with a new song from Meat Beat Manifesto's Opaque Couché album. This is No Design. Enjoy it, and I will see you next week for another episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Uh...